0: ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. And uh, good morning to you all and good morning to my co-host Steve McDonald. Good morning, Steve. Hey there, Nick. Nice to to see you this morning. Good to be here again. And we have a special guest this morning. We do. Back with us again, um, Ross Hill. A regular visitor from Melbourne up here again for some business. We might even talk a bit about that later on the day. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're doing with all of that. Welcome, Ross. Nice Thank to see you. you again. Um, What are we on to today? We're going to be chatting about a little bit, starting with a little bit of the local situation. There is an election coming up on
1: Saturday. There is, yeah. So we'll have a look at uh, some local and global current affairs from the perspective of collapse and emergence. And um, there's a general theme of leadership and uh, organisational structuring around new leadership that mm. I think running through a number of threads today.
0: Mm. Mm. Yes, well, I, just on, on that, I mean, we'll maybe extend it uh, briefly. Some people might have seen Bill Shorten on Q&A on the ABC uh, a week or so ago, and I watched that. I was actually very impressed with him for the first time. And I thought, oh, actually, there's, there's some potential for a bit of new leadership with this chap. I mean, I could be naive, I could be idealistic, but there you go. But I did sort of read something into his uh, in his persona that f- made me feel intuitively that there was something quite real about this man. And, yeah. uh, it surprised me actually, because I'd always thought he was a bit dull and boring,
2: and just another <laughs> me, part of the establishment. Which of course he's is also his true. game, which is great, and yeah.
1: it's encouraging to see that. Um, and we've also got to factor in that we're really dealing with a broken political system as, as are most countries around the world at the moment these are systems that were designed before the internet and designed with different motivations you know when when different values were uh, common across society society's changed values have changed and these systems are failing unfortunately um, and it's it's wonderful to get uh, you know a, a positive constructive leader but we still also have to deal with the fact that there's large-scale corporate capture of political systems right across the planet. And of course, uh, we've got the precedent here in Australia of, of Kevin Rudd, who came in you know, seemingly with a refreshing approach and some new yeah. ideas and was very quickly shut down, yeah. um, largely due to money thrown at you know, a campaign to, uh, to get him out of power by the mining lobby here in Australia. So, yes. uh, and of course, you know, going back in history to the last huge wave of, of change that came through in the 1960s, there's the story of JFK, which we can't forget either.
0: You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. And Ross Hill is also with us uh, this week, our special guest, who's been a, a regular visitor when he's up here from uh, from Melbourne. And thanks to B for dropping in and uh, launching the Countdown for uh, the tribute to Countdown, June the 8th at the Bangalore I See you there. Um, election this week, Steve, uh, Ross, uh, it's a big one, obviously, for everybody. Hard to make sense of many of the Movements and uh, the the, uh, the fake news, if you will, the propaganda, the the angles, the stories, uh, the the controversies that sort of uh, riv, ri- riven through through that's not the right word through our uh, political
1: discourse. But there it is, yeah, threaded through our political discourse. Threaded, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good word, yeah, mm-hmm. um, very true, and. Um I, you know, one good indicator is always to look at where the money is going. And if you look at the the gambling around this election, then it's uh, certainly favouring a, a Labour Party mm. victory. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. And uh, and as you said, you know, Bill Shorten's sounding refreshing and putting forward some new ideas. And and uh, I'm sure that that's his honest intention. Um, the big question is if he is elected as the next prime minister, will he be able to implement those things and will you know will there be too many obstacles in the way of, of, sort of some of the more radical changes that they're proposing? That is the big question and uh, as uh, I just pointed out during the break I've just pulled up an article from, Twenty seventeen, yes, uh, which is a
0: long time ago, but very relevant because yeah, where is this?
1: Where is this gone? It's it, disappeared. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so this article is uh, the headline is is Cambridge Analytica the Liberal Party's twenty nineteen Trump card? That's in relation to the Australian election uh, that's happening next weekend, and of course, uh, everybody listening probably knows that Cambridge Analytica was uh, intimately involved in the social media campaign during uh, the the last American election. Mm. And Uh, Brexit also. And also Brexit as well. And uh, not long after, uh, I think it was probably around the time this article was just shortly before this article was written, uh, um, there was the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, Alexander Nix, visited Australia uh, to talk to our politicians out Mm. here. So what's really interesting, though, I think, is that I haven't seen any recent media about the possibility of Cambridge Analytica or that style of um, marketing being involved in the current election and, and that's probably all concerning that it's gone quiet yeah. actually. It makes me wonder what's well, what's happening behind the scenes.
0: I remember this being reported at some point, I think uh, later than that, it might have been last year sometime in 2018 when, when the whole Cambridge Analytica sort of thing burst through. And at that point, there was some indication that this had happened, that, the, that Cambridge Analytica representatives had been here in 2017. But I looked it up then and there was very, very little reporting on it anywhere then, let alone now. Yeah. So it was kept quite right up front, I think. That's probably the likely um,
1: likely scenario. Yeah, and, um, and the difficulty now is it's hard to know. You know? Mm. Um, it's hard to know what's being done in terms of targeting social media.
2: Yeah, um, and on that note, um, you can look on the flip side uh, we we sort of see that Cambridge Analytica, the the company, may have gone away and gone quiet, mm-hmm. but um, the social networks are still the social networks, and so Facebook is Facebook, Twitter <laughs> is Twitter. Every uh, every few seemingly every few weeks, they um, apologize for another thing that's gone wrong and more data leaking out of their platforms, or unintended consequences, or you know trolling and abuse, and there's there's heaps of stuff going on, and that all sounds very familiar. So I'd suggest that hasn't changed over the last few years, mm-hmm. uh, and there is a uh, obviously uh, a bit of a broadening. Um, a few years ago, we maybe in, in Australia just talked about Facebook and Twitter and some of these more Western ones. Um, this year, there's been a bit of a focus on WeChat. Yes, Chinese WeChat. Platform, yes. Um, as the the leaders have joined that. Um, and that's that's quite interesting because WeChat uh, is from China, not from the United States. And so it has a different regulatory environment and different, you know, everything, everything tied up in a national mm. system. Um, and so it will have... You know types of censorship which are different to the censorship you might expect from facebook um, different controls different different things that you're allowed to say um, you know it's pretty mm. widely known that there's, there's a lot of uh, events or topics that you you don't mention when you're in china um, and so you don't mention them on the social media as well uh, just as when you talk about certain topics on facebook you're going to get moderated away mm. uh, and so all of that is is still there uh, and um, that that obviously has an effect on the election as well Yeah. Yeah. How do we know too. who to trust?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and there was an article on the ABC just recently about Chinese media mocking the current prime minister in WeChat posts, uh, which you've, you've got to wonder where that's been coming from also. Mm. But in, in terms of the general paradigm shift that's going on globally, that is favouring a shift towards community thinking. And, uh, you know, clearly with the, the Labor Party having a socialist um, foundation, uh, it generally favours, you know, that, that's where people's thinking is looking. People are looking to, towards the wisdom of crowds, looking towards yep. rebalancing this society, which is so much out of balance in terms of the distribution of wealth mm. and privilege. And, uh, and the Liberal Party, of course, is, uh, you know, well regarded as representing that 1%. Um, so it gives them a, a general disadvantage in terms of the, the current thinking. Mm.
2: Yeah. And of course, what it all boils down to is you go into the polling booth on the day, um, I actually pre-voted a few days ago. Um, since I do a lot of travel, uh, you get your bit of paper and you write down a few numbers on a on a page, right? You put it in the box and you hope for the best. <laughs>
1: That's right, exactly.
0: That's and- the end of your engagement with the, with the democratic process. So we're just suggesting. well, we'll That's for a lot of people,
2: soak up some media. You know, we learn what we can. Yeah. Um, some of it we go and find and research ourselves, and some of it we just listen to what we normally listen to, which is, is great. Um, but from my experience, it's like you know, you write your numbers on the paper. Uh, it's it's. It, You could say it's more difficult to engage you know if if you want to run for office or something that is what it is Um, but at the same time you can vote with a tweet you can vote with every dollar that you spend in a Mm. shop Mm. Um, and so we have a lot of different ways of expressing um you know our influence Mm. um and that sort of relates to advertising if you look at cambridge analytica um, it's advertising and it's just saying how do we get these messages out to the people and do they listen to them and respond um and so to me that feels very similar to every time you hear an ad about something or you see a, a mention and does it change how you live your life and does it change how you spend your money you know it does <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: and there are layers and layers of problems within the system um, and, and the, the issue of corporate capture is one that we talk about a lot here and this reflects the mindset of the the modern scientific industrial paradigm in that it will change the world to suit itself you know it's very much driven by by personal success uh, which often means financial success And so over the years, the electoral boundaries have been changed, you know, to to make it more likely for the government of the time to get back into power. And then...
0: Gerrymandering. Certainly certainly that's the case in America and I think in Queensland. I think this time, though, there's been a redistribution of electoral boundaries, which favours Labour, interestingly. Uh, Yeah, which uh, is independent. Federally, you see. Federally, yeah. Yeah, there is. I think there's like three seats that uh, are nominally now regarded as li- likely Labor rather than likely Liberal in right, selection. Right. So that's just a change in demographics within different regions. Yeah. It,
1: it is interesting. And then, you know, essentially we're dealing with a binary system where even though we have a number of political parties, at the end of the day, there are two main parties and it's usually an either or, an or, either or kind of a, a decision here. Although Australia does have a, a reasonable history of uh, using our Senate as a bit of a... Um, pressure release mechanism, you yes, know, and, keep, and keeping the bastards on as exactly, as you as know, as voting in minor to parties to, uh, to allow the Senate to veto any radically unfavourable legislation that might be you know, pushed through by the government at the time
0: or, or of course um, manipulate special interests very small special interests in in order to get some of that legislation through and that's a danger I suppose of the minor party uh, um, structured uh, Senate but uh, I think it's a good thing that we have that independence because it shows the diversity in sort of equalisation of the field in some sense doesn't
1: it yeah and again with the paradigm shift we're seeing a general fragmentation of everything you know things are being broken down and, and we are uh, looking to this uh, wisdom of crowds uh, idea you know you could also look at it as a kind of a big data approach where you take in as much information as you can in order to make a decision <laughs> rather than allowing just a couple of people who were privileged to make the decisions for everybody
2: you mm. do, which is often overwhelming yes yeah yeah absolutely the big yeah, data. on all that big senate yeah. voting paper <laughs> absolutely it is and that's
1: the challenge that you know the emerging paradigm faces is that overwhelming amount of data and everybody wants to have a say everybody should have a say you know according to the to the worldview, and uh you get flooded with information
0: so i mean that i mean that's a really important point we, we refer to this notion quite often here uh the idea of overwhelm and, and confusion yep. given the complexity of things and the amount of information that's available to any one individual who's plugged in anywhere in the world now how do you resolve that how do you move beyond <laughs> i know big question uh just simply for today how, i mean how do you move one one move beyond that that flood? of stuff that comes towards us and make some sort of sense of it so you can actually live a life engaged life and uh, hopefully contribute to a better world etc
2: embrace the flood
0: <laughs> maybe
2: maybe just that yeah good answer yeah. i like that i mean the, the flood the flood is overwhelming but um mm you know it's better than a little trickle of, of water right I mean if, if you look back you know you, you maybe watch a few TV shows or just mm. the, the news which was a yeah, singular thing and now there's lots of news as you can look at and you can listen to your friends and you can listen to your, the groups who are a part is of. Is that a word? Community. Newses? The past yeah, tense I of news? <laughs> <laughs> kind of <kinda> like that. <laughs> the flood of newses. <laughs>
1: One of the mechanisms that's built into this paradigm shift to deal with that is relocalization, hmm. and so instead of trying to take in all of the information from the whole world, you come back to your local and immediate needs and interests and, and rebuilding local community. And at that scale, that all-inclusive uh, process is, is manageable. Um, and so that's one of the ways that in the short term, this is going to work very, very well. And, uh, you know, the, the refocus to local everything uh, is going to make that process of inclusivity manageable initially. Mm. Um, eventually, um, you know, we know from all of the information that we have from all the research that's been done around this, that this emerging paradigm is going to be the shortest lived paradigm of them all so far. Maybe only just a couple of decades, and the reason that it's going to be short-lived is because of this issue of trying to include all of the information, uh, you know, trying to include everybody. Eventually, it is going to get overwhelming, and we're going to do the big pop and leap to second tier consciousness, uh, you know, driven by that tension.
2: Yeah. yeah it can be hard to let go though we do oh totally absolutely. <laughs> it is very uh, satisfying but it to- won't be an
1: easy process we know <laughs> that
0: and and, yeah. be, and um, correct me of course if, if i'm not accurate here but that that leap into second what we call second tier consciousness what was called that by um claire w graves we weren't going to mention claire's name today yeah, but there you, we did you had to put a jelly bean i put a jelly bean in the jug, uh, <laughs> in the jug. <laughs> i love jelly beans um the, the notion that um moving to second tier that from that that so much going on, overwhelm, confusion. How do I make sense of everything? To all of a sudden leaping to a place where, oh, this is my role, and this is this is my role in this network here that I've established, and this is what I'm to do now. That that sort of clearing away the you know, um, <laughs> macheting through the forest of your own confusion to find the path that is true for you. Yeah, that seems to be what's going on. What
1: needs to happen in order to yeah. move to a second? Uh, Absolutely, you know. but uh, you know, I wouldn't say that's limited to second tier. I mean, you know, you can do that finding your own path and you know finding your place in the world in in any of mm. the uh, layers of consciousness. It's not just a second mm. tier thing. I think the the thing that really makes the difference when we do transition to second tier is we get access to new information that we mm. don't have access to previously, and, and in that we start to be able to interpret uh, consciousness, you know, and uh, and I guess um, see people more deeply than we've ever seen them before. And that opens up uh, far more sense-making tools that that solve a lot of the complexity that we have at the moment. Like if you just think about the, you know, the fake news issue as an example at the moment, all of this information coming at us through social media, how do we know what to listen to and what not to listen to? And from a second-tier perspective, uh, a way to cut through that uh, that noise is actually to use the capacity to um, analyse level of consciousness through the, and you can do it through the analysis of written language or spoken word. Mm. Um, then you can actually identify uh, the more complex and capable uh, sources of information, and simply pay attention to those. So that's that's a way of sorting through this diversity mm. that's very very efficient and effective but that's not available until the transition into second tier mm. for all of you out
0: there strangers in a strange land you're grokking future sense here on bay fm yes that's uh, the first the opening uh, minute or so of uh, dirty power from greenpeace Powerful little piece. It's only fifteen minutes long, and I, we certainly suggest uh, folks that you have a look at that if you're interested in. Uh, it's, it's pretty. obvious It certainly makes a big difference. Whoops! It certainly makes a big difference to uh, how I even uh, uh, looked at the at the serious complexity of, of the coal and other mining interests in this country.
1: Yeah, and it just it goes to show how deep it runs as well. You know, like it's it's thoroughly captured the whole system, mm-hmm. um, the political system, in other words. Uh, by these uh, big money interests, and in Australia, that just happens to be the coal or the, the, the uh, fossil fuel lobby, yeah. you know, the mining lobby in general, not just fossil fuels.
0: And we talked about at breakfast here the fact that this 15 minute video talks about the coalition members and it details it's a very fine piece of, uh, of journalism, uh, details the connections between many members of the coalition, the current coalition government. Uh, and past coalition governments, uh, the the mining industry, particularly the coal industry, and the lobby groups associated with, and the sort of revolving doors between all those three back and forth, doesn't mention one Labor Party uh, operative or member in this
1: particular video. No, it's it's clearly biased in that respect. I clearly think should, biased in that respect. We should be respect. clear about that. Um, even so, uh, it's it's a valid observation of what is. Uh, you know, from that particular perspective, and as I mentioned earlier, we should remember that uh, there was a lot of money uh, from the mining industry that got poured into media to uh, promote or, or perhaps trigger the uh, the removal of Kevin Rudd as yeah. the prime minister. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then that was really the trigger of this cascade of you know revolving. Uh, Prime, prime ministers, ministers that we've had since <laughs> then, you know, short term prime ministers since two
0: thousand and seven. I yeah, know, oh, I know. So we're, know. Yeah. So we, we we're like Italy. That. We're worse than Italy. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, Italians. Of course,
2: Kevin Rudd also was uh, Kevin 7 and he was mm. really the first Australian um, to use his Canada. name to rhyme as a slogan. <laughs> <laughs> not first for that, but he uh, <laughs> no, probably not. He did use social media very heavily and made a big deal of it. Yeah, um, which worked in his favour to a degree. But it is interesting that um, that those sort of networks are growing and continuing to grow, mm. and so. Um, you know obviously all the current candidates are on social media so it's not a big deal anymore but um, it's interesting to look at how big are these networks and you know at what stage do they overtake some of the previous most powerful networks So lobbying is sort of taken for granted. Uh, Kevin was probably hopeful that his, his social media following would overpower that um, but it undid him in the end. Mm-hmm. And so at what stage does that that new form of network start to uh, you know bring more power with it?
1: Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And the other interesting connection with Kevin, of course, was he's connected to China. Yeah, um, and he's a he's a Chinese speaker and Mandarin speaker, of course. Yes, and, He would have been uh, on WeChat. Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it, it makes me think back to uh, Whitlam's removal in 1975, and there was a there was actually. A, A movie made about the uh, alleged CIA involvement Mm. of the removal of of Whitlam, who of course was, was, uh, you know, a socialist. Oh yes, Um, comrade. And so you've got to factor those influences in as well. I mean, you know, the relationship between Australia and the USA is a long one and uh, and a very powerful one. Um, And uh, any any significant move towards a threat to that relationship would be drawing the attention of all of those who are involved in.
0: And it's very interesting because I mentioned a Netflix show that I've just watched a little bit of in the last few days called Pine Gap, an Australian, I think it's an Australian-American production, it's essentially Australian though, which looks at exactly that, of this relationship between America, Australia and China and how Australia sort of in the centre of that right now, in all sorts of ways, biggest yeah. trading partner on one hand, and yet our major military and uh, you know cultural alliances with the United States, and there's a you know growing, uh, growing schism potentially in that uh, in that relationship, and the Pine Gap's worth having a look at, folks, on Netflix, to know how it ends up, but it's actually surprisingly quite decent. I thought it was probably a bit of trash, but actually it was, yeah. it was quite good. It's interesting. Of course,
2: the place itself has a big fence around it, so it's hard to physically well, go and look at it. But it is an American Australian production.
0: Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I do remember, uh, someone told me back in the 80s when Bob Hawke was elected Prime Minister, this is an anecdote that I was told I always remember, um, where he was taken to Pine Gap and he was taken down underneath into the very secretive parts as the new Australian Prime Minister. And when he came out, well, Bob Hawke, as we know, you know, like you know, feisty, you know, the way that he was, the way that he is, the way that he was, um, and um, he was—he came out sort of ashen-faced, and, and the interpretation was he'd been shown and told things that that was that you are now uh, the prime minister of this minor country, and we, the Americans, are in control here, and this is what we're doing. And thanks very much, you can
1: toe the line. One of my one of my contacts, who I'll leave nameless at this <laughs> stage, uh, who was very 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 senior uh, defence officer here in Australia. Uh, said to me once that he'd he'd just been on a tour of the NSA uh, in the US and he shook his head and he said if you saw what I saw there you'd never touch a computer again
0: (laughs) there you go oh my god you're tuned to Future Sense here with myself Nick Jeans Steve McDonald and uh, our guest Ross Hilder you're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald engage emerge activate and spiral up into future sense 99.9 Nine here with myself, Nick Jean, Steve McDonald, and our special guest, Ross Hill. Uh, you can text in, and thanks for a couple of texts here on 043734119. 043734119. And uh, we've just been raving a little bit, raging, raising, raving, roging, roving, roaming across the field of Australian <laughs> politics. Uh,
1: but we're going to go a little bit wider now here. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, just a few current affairs issues from around the world on the topic of emergence. Uh, Elon Musk is about to launch some satellites, right? Mm.
2: He is. Um, so most people are probably aware that he's he's been working on launching rockets and satellites into orbit. Um, and the cool trick is that they can land the rockets and reuse them again, uh, which is obviously sustainable, more sustainable, because you're not throwing the rockets out, which was the uh, the previous model. Um but it also means it's a lot cheaper to launch the rockets because you just have to fill up the tank and uh, give it a polish and up it goes again. And so <laughs> what, they've, what they've been quietly working on in the background for the last four or so years is a satellite internet company. And so they're, they've traditionally launched their own rockets, but with other people's satellites. And so what they're doing now is launching or preparing to launch their own satellites mm. to give us a... International broadband network, <laughs> um, and so the the real shift is that if if you look at satellite internet at the moment, um, such as the NBN, the NBN has two satellites. They're huge, six and a bit ton, you know, monoliths, and they have to hover over the same place of the Earth as the Earth spins around. Yeah. So that means they're hanging out at around thirty-five thousand kilometers away. And every time you load a picture on Instagram, it has to go thirty-five thousand kilometers and back, and that's why it's traditionally quite slow. So the big shift here is that um, they want to launch these satellites at an altitude of about three hundred and fifty kilometers high. Um, some of them a thousand kilometers, you know, which is a lot different to thirty thousand kilometers. Yeah. And so what that means is they're really, really fast, um, and you know, at comparable speed. And to they're tiny, satellite.
0: aren't they? The satellites themselves are pretty small. Aren't they?
2: Yeah. So because they're closer to the Earth. Yeah. Um, they don't last as long, because they're going to eventually burn up in a couple of years' time. And so the real trick here is that um, they launch heaps of them. So this launch this week should have about 60 satellites. Not one, but 60. And you throw them out, and they spin around the Earth in, in this low orbit uh, for a couple of years, giving us internet access. Um, and then they burn up, naturally. And so the plan is not just to launch one or two satellites like the MVN have done, but to launch, uh, within the next six to nine years, about 10,000 satellites. <laughs> um, so this launch will be 60. But they will need to average um, 50 or 60 new satellites in orbit every month, continuously, every month. to keep it up there. <laughs> so uh,
0: That's if, a lot of space junk. Or do yeah. they burn up completely? What happens to the to the burnt-out satellites? Do they burn up completely? No, there must be some yeah, refuse yeah. up there, or do they completely? No,
2: no the idea is they, um, they're designed uh, purposefully to burn up okay. in a planned fashion over time, uh, in a couple of years once they're done. Um, and so even if they break on launch, gravity will pull them down, they go away. Hmm. Um, And so that's why they depend on relaunching new ones, and it becomes this permanent thing. Hmm. So if they pull it off, we'll have um, potentially super, super fast internet around the whole planet. and uh, that would be really cool. They're That's- not doing it alone. There's also Boeing and OneWeb web other companies who are working on similar things. Yeah, an well, absolute
1: game changer, really. Do you know uh, how that technology is going to work? I mean, will devices be able to talk directly to the satellites? Will there be intermediate ground stations? Or-
2: yeah, so um, they're still working on that at the moment. Right. Um, but the general idea is that you have a box on your roof, yep. um, just like the current satellite ones. But instead of having to point the dish somewhere and... Um, the issues that that has with it, it'll be a lot smaller, you know, some, something a little bit like a pizza box with uh, probably yeah. a solar panel and a, an okay. antenna. Interesting. And that would give you Wi-Fi into your house. Yeah, sweet. Uh, but the, the upside is, and the, the real opportunity is, that's all you need is this box. You can put a solar panel on it, and so you can be in the middle of nowhere with your little box and get really, really fast internet.
1: Yeah. And how are they monetizing this? I mean, how are they going to pay for it? Mm.
2: Um, that's a good question. Yeah. I assume they're going to charge us a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so
0: it's it's fast internet for everybody who can afford it
2: yeah Yeah. and and yeah so they they haven't really announced what they're going to do Mm. and and what the the plan is for monetizing it at the moment um but just as they're shifting the model on launching it uh, and it is a lot cheaper to launch these these satellites than um the traditional models so i imagine they're you know if if it's too expensive we're not going to buy it right um so it's it's going to have a lot more reach than the traditional satellite internet uh, but it won't replace your mobile phone. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. It's interesting because we're living at a time now where some high schools are actually sending rockets into space, aren't they? Yeah. Which is pretty amazing in itself. It's and other high cool.
0: schools are banning mobile phones
1: in the classroom in, in, at school, so <laughs> yeah, you've got things happening both sides. Yeah, I know, I know. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, in other news, the city of Denver has just voted via referendum to decriminalise magic mushrooms, which is very, very interesting. And uh, as has been the case, Colorado seems to be leading the way uh, in the uh, the rollout of psychedelic medicines and uh, i was talking recently to uh, a venture capital uh, fund manager who's interested in these sorts of progressive things and he was predicting that colorado will the, the whole state will fully legalize uh, magic mushrooms in the not too distant future which is very very interesting yeah. uh, and he sees um, them going down a very similar road to medical cannabis
0: Yeah. Uh, On on the topic of of cannabis, a report a couple of days ago um, from the the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA in America, uh, not a particularly avid backer of the cultivation and legalisation of marijuana. However, in a new Federal Register filing set to soon be published, the anti-drug agency is gearing up to increase the total amount of cannabis that can be legally grown in the US for research purposes. The increase is rumoured to be more than five times the amount of uh, what is allowed at the current date, which is approximately £1,000 and will increase to roughly £5,400 next year. Meanwhile, the DEA is also planning to lessen the amount of certain opioid drugs such as oxycodone, hydrocodone, morphine, fentanyl and others that are manufactured in the United States. So basically they're they're waking up a little bit to the potential for marijuana for cannabis to replace um, the use of opioids to some degree.
1: Very interesting. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of tension around this, I'm sure, much of it uh, not getting into the media, uh, but the large pharmaceutical companies are standing to lose a terrible amount of money from the sale of these opioid-based pharmaceuticals uh, as medical cannabis comes onto the market, unless, of course, they they, uh, reorient themselves to take advantage of the, the medical cannabis mm. growth.
0: At the end of this article says that it's time that Congress looked at the 28,000-plus peer-reviewed studies currently hosted on the National Institute of Health's online database and reform federal law by removing marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act altogether, which uh, would be certainly a good thing. That's, uh, the time has come for these medicines to start to really come online around the world. And that's that's an exciting change for the future, for sure.
1: It is exciting. Yeah, another exciting change is that the crypto market looks like it's starting to move again. It is, it's showing signs of life. Absolutely. Uh, So in the
2: past week, uh, Bitcoin, the original um, cryptocurrency, peaked over 10,000 Australian dollars. And Ethereum, which is the, the second biggest one at the moment, uh, As around two hundred and eighty dollars. Yeah. Um, so it was a big spike because that's going up about fifteen or twenty percent in uh, in a single day.
1: Yeah. If you look at the the all time Bitcoin uh, price chart, then it's very very clearly ticking up. I'm just holding it up for the other fellows to see. <laughs> <laughs>
2: definitely, definitely ticking up. Have um, a look at that,
1: folks. Look at that graph. But I mean, it
2: could go anywhere from here, right? <laughs> it,
1: it could. But look at the trade volume on there, uh, which yeah. is really interesting. You know, the trade volume is um, down the bottom a, there. Actually, uh, on this graph that I'm looking at, which is current, uh, as of today, the 13th of May, it looks like there's been a spike in 24-hour volume that exceeds any previous level, according to this graph on uh, coinmarketcap.com. Yeah, that's and so that's quite interesting because the yeah. price has
2: been yeah relatively stable for Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency, but the volume is definitely picking up. People yeah. having a, a another look at, at what's happening, and what's changed since the last big peak is there's tens mm. of thousands of different projects and and currencies and assets and tokens, and um, people are putting real estates in uh, real estate into uh, cryptocurrency tokens so you can trade it differently. People are representing um, fashion now. There's a, there's a you know different mm. couture outfits that are being sold around. Um, Lots of different projects. Nike just put a a patent out registering, um, I've forgotten the name right now, but it's something like, you know, crypto shoes. Crypto Um, shoes. So you can trade (laughs) these different styles as well. So there's a lot of movement happening, but uh, effectively um, when cryptocurrency first came out, it was saying, here's Bitcoin, it's a bit like digital gold. Um, And some people love gold and they got excited by that. But your everyday person is uh, probably not as interested in gold. Uh, but now it's seeping into everything. So yeah. whether it's shoes or real estate, mm. um, it's it's representing these different forms of value in a digital form, and that means we can send it and we can trade it and mm. we can value it in much different ways.
0: Is it, I mean, these app- applied uses that are extending, expanding in all sorts of directions in, 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 our, uh, in our lives, um, how's that facing off against the, the difference in government regulations around the world? Because they're all in tax, you know, everybody's, all the all countries seem to be, the little that I know about it, seem to, they're not on the same page.
2: They're yeah. not, no. no. Um, just as with anything, there's different tax situations and legal situations in each country. And uh, of course, that makes it interesting when you're working with the internet, because you can, yeah. you can look at the internet from every country. Uh, so there's been a bit of movement in places like Malta. Uh, Malta treat cryptocurrency a little bit differently, um, in the same way that you know the Cayman Islands are associated with uh, certain times of privacy. Um, Malta is becoming a bit of a crypto hub. Singapore as well, uh, and it's because they're they're sort of loosening some of the restrictions, or they just don't have the restrictions. Um, so that that is interesting, and, and companies will move around. So one of the top exchanges called Binance started in China, moved to Malta. Um, unfortunately this week they lost 40 million dollars of bitcoin in a hack uh, so that also happened the hacks haven't gone away keeps things okay, interesting so <laughs> because
0: originally and I think we've talked about this before uh, a year or so ago you know the the, the notion of uh, hacking these cryptocurrencies uh, is not an easy thing to do and yet it is possible so it, it, it is, is a, it is a risk isn't it mm. it does happen has it does happened. happen it happens all the time yeah
2: uh, and just like uh, if you look at the history of banking, yeah. um, there was gold robbers, right? It and was you golden. used to literally rob the bank. You'd go in, you'd take the stuff, and you've got it. And cryptocurrency is quite similar. If you have the private key of the, the asset, then you can run off with it. You
0: just don't need a getaway car.
2: Well, but you leave bigger footprints, right? Everything's on the blockchain. And so it's it's not as automatic as just taking the stuff because you can mm. follow where it's going. <laughs> mm. okay. And so there are new systems coming up, uh, different ways of protecting wallets, Um and and having making use of network effects, mm. so there are some where if you do lose your key, you can go and recover it through a group system, or you know if you're on an exchange, the exchange will help you with that and charge you a fee for it. Uh, and so there are these new things evolving. It's it's not a finished perfect system, mm. but it's it's very very interesting. And I don't think many people would claim that it's it's going away. <laughs> it's definitely not going away. Uh, we still buy stuff. We still pay for stuff and uh we do want to do it more internationally and faster and cheaper and Mm. in new ways
1: yeah Yeah. as we've been mentioning on recent episodes uh there has been a lot of talk of a potential liquidity crisis a global liquidity crisis this month and i guess we're nearly halfway through the month now hasn't shown up yet so whether it's going to happen or not we don't know but but if it does it'll be very interesting to see how that impacts the crypto market Mm. which way it goes could go either way. i think
2: yeah yeah, one one of the other big differences in um Uh, the the current market and liquidity is that a couple of years ago you had to trade everything through Bitcoin. So you would spend your um, Aussie dollars on Bitcoin then you would trade it for something else. Uh, And now there's so many more exchanges popping up around the world and they're much more flexible. So you can buy uh, the actual thing you want to buy much more directly. Uh, And so that does change the system.
1: It does for sure, yeah. In other news, uh, I guess this is more in the collapse uh, file than the emergence (laughs) file. Uh, A bit of climate news. There's... an article here from about a week ago talking about farmers in the Midwest of the USA uh, who've been waiting a very long time for floodwaters to recede. And of course, there was some extraordinary cold weather during the American winter this year, the North American winter, which dropped an awful lot of snow. And uh, all of that has melted and is running down the rivers. And right at the moment, uh, according to this article, which I said is about a week old, the Mississippi River has been at major flood stage for 41 days in a row and there's more rain coming as well and uh, they're warning that the major flooding may extend into June and that means that many farmers will not be able to plant crops at all this year. So uh, we're looking at um, uh, fewer crops and less food of course which usually means rising food prices and in the the longer term forecast particularly from Armstrong Economics this is going to be an increasingly significant issue, Uh, and uh, I think his computer algorithm has been talking about 2024 as a significant year for uh, crop losses impacting food prices and general food shortages, and as we controversially do mention on the show, sometimes that there is some scientific evidence that's pointing to uh, the emergence of a mini ice age instead of actually global warming. Which we understand is very controversial. So we're we're generally quite mindful about how we talk about it. But if that is true, <laughs> then uh, that could that that will mean major major crop losses. And in the work of uh, mathematician and astrophysicist doctor yeah. Valentina Zarkova, which uh, has involved study of solar dynamics and solar weather and how it impacts the planet, um, she has said that from twenty. 28 through 2032 then the entire world will be facing serious serious crop losses Mm. from climate related issues particularly cold weather Mm. uh, and and all of the consequences like like this example from mississippi where the the all of that cold weather produces snow and ice which melts and then floods and then farmers can't plant their crops Mm. um and uh, valentina zavkova has has said very very specifically that, that according to her research, this is going to be so significant that unless governments plan in advance, there are going to be major, major problems with, with people not being able to get access to food. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: This is one of the things too that's um, also being tracked from orbit where there's a, we've always had this, uh, well, not always, but there's a lot of people taking photos of the planet. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot more different databases of imagery that are becoming available. Um, some that are updated as much as twice a day. Um, and so one interesting capability that gives is you can go back in time through pictures of the planet. And you can see the shift. Like, there was a forest here this week. It's not there next week. These crops are looking good. These crops are looking bad. Here's the the state of this flood over there. Um, and of course, that's a lot of stuff, and it's quite overwhelming. So there's a, a bunch of different organizations. Um, there's a new one as well called What Time, and mm. they're looking at using AI to crunch all of this imagery. Um, and I think optimistically, they're claiming they might be able to track the carbon emissions of coal power plants. Um, I think that's a, a bit of a stretch perhaps at the moment. Yeah. Um, you can track smoke, visible smoke, quite easily. Um, and what we're going to see over time is just you'll be able to track more and more stuff. Um, some of these companies are claiming they can count how many trees are on the planet. Uh, and so some of those stats are, are very, very powerful. Some others like um, carbon cool. dioxide molecules, I'm not sure. You know? <laughs> that's interesting. <I> mean,
0: <laughs> Generally what, more. <laughs> what time is a, as a non-profit artificial intelligence firm... And it claims whatever the quality and the depth of uh, knowledge that they are able to ascertain from this satellite imagery crunched in this way, they are saying that it will be not just available to regulators and politicians, but the public as well. Mm. So that's a good thing. Yeah, Um, yeah, interesting. Why do you think it's going to be difficult to really uh, articulate good numbers of what is being emitted from a coal-fired fire power station, yeah. for example. So Don't they do that already? I thought that's how they <laughs> measured things. No, obviously not. How do they not. measure
2: these things? I, I'm not a scientist. Yeah. Um, but when you're starting with imagery, there's a lot of stuff, you. once you look at satellite maps a little bit, there's a lot of stuff that's very visible that you don't think about when you're on the ground. Mm. So if you've got a coal mine, an open-cut open coal mine next to a coal plant, you can see how much coal is being dug out. That's going through the system. Emissions are coming out of that. Um, uh, Hedge funds have done the same thing for a long time with those big oil tanks. And from the ground, they look like this big round oil tank. From the top, they have this floating roof in a lot of them. And you can see by the shadow of the sun on the side of the tank how full the oil tank is. Oh, interesting. So there's all sorts of stuff that (laughs) you get a different perspective on the world literally from being above. Um, You can spot a lot of stuff.
0: The overview Uh, effect.
2: Yeah. And uh, that in combination with this big cloud computing and AI type systems of machine learning, they can crunch a lot more numbers than we can Mm. ourselves rationally. Um, And so that's super cool. We've got a bigger calculator. But it, we still need direction on, you know, double checking. Like, does this really make sense? Can we really, can we really measure that stuff?
1: That's right. And you know, what sort of uh, systems, modelling systems, are these figures that we're collecting being fed into?
2: Yes, <laughs> as well. Yes, has a big impact
1: <laughs> on it. And uh, in other news, the UN chief has come out and warned of total disaster, quote unquote, if global warming is not stopped. And according to this report from the Globe and Mail, uh, he's saying that the world must dramatically change the way it fuels factories, vehicles, and homes to limit future warming to a level scientists nearly mm. call impossible. Actually, and um, you know, there's a perfect storm brewing here. If you if you take that angle, the global warming angle, and the calls to to in some respects shut down industrialized civilization versus the you know, the possibility that uh, we don't actually have all the science sorted out, uh, you know, and, and as we've said before on the show, uh, a lot of the global warming movement seems to blindly repeat mantras rather than actually uh, looking at the, the evidence and the emerging paradigm at the moment, this relativistic, network-centric, humanistic way of being human that's emerging has a tendency to collapse hierarchies. Um, and in doing so, often it can lose cause and effect relationships, mm. lose sight of them, mm. them completely,
2: and also get fixated on simple numbers. Yeah, that's you know, right. And one uh, number to rule them all.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and what I think is really important at this stage in our history is to keep an open mind and look at all the evidence, mm. you know, and not discard evidence because it's it's wrong, you know, and there's a, a general opinion. Out there at the moment, that it's wrong if you don't support. Mm. Global, Are you with us or against the us? global warming crowd? You know, and and I would argue what's actually wrong is to be closed-minded, mm. and we we should be open to all of the the scientific evidence that coming in, that is coming in. Keep monitoring it all, not not just you know one hypothesis. Otherwise, we're going to get caught out seriously. And I think what's happening in Mississippi right now is a wonderful small-scale example of what could turn into a global disaster. If we focus on uh, this idea that it's going to get hotter and uh, we end up with a world that's got a whole mix of both hot and cold temperatures and some extremes in both directions, then we won't be prepared for that.
0: Mm. And I think it's interesting, too, as you said earlier today, you can really read a lot, of course, into language and uh, the language that's been used around this issue has been uh, the term global warming for a long time predominantly. That's shifted a lot in my perception to the the term climate change. And now to to me, uh, uh, the the phrase climate instability seems to be rising. And that seems to be a much more accurate and sophisticated interpretation of what's going on. It is unstable for all sorts of reasons, yes, but we do not yet know perhaps exactly which direction it's going to. And that's a contentious thing to say and it shouldn't be because we do need to be
1: more Uh, intelligent about the way that we approach the data out there. Yeah, remaining curious is the key. And Mm. uh, in the crazy ideas basket, there's a couple of interesting (laughs) stories here. Uh, One's very recent from the 10th of May, and uh, it's an idea by a chap called Sir David King, which suggests that he must be from the UK probably. Uh, Here we go. He's a University of Cambridge professor, and he's come up with a radical new uh, centre for climate repair to repair the damage humans are doing to the environment, and one of the proposals he's floated is the idea of working to refreeze the polar regions, Mm. Uh, and uh, I think his uh, idea is is something to do with generating cloud cover that would cool the poles down and allow them to refreeze. And it made me just look back uh, in history a little bit to the 1970s, and uh, I found an article back there where some scientists were considering pouring soot Mm. um, over the Arctic in the 1970s to help melt the ice in order to prevent another ice age. this is
0: 1975 in Newsweek. Uh, It was quite an extensive piece on this, and I vaguely remember this era where, where there was talk of, of, of an ice age back then at some point. I kind of vaguely, my age, couldn't remember that a little yeah, bit, too. Yeah, it
1: certainly was on the cover of Time magazine mm-hmm. and, and other uh, yeah. big magazines, for sure. It was it was the general feeling back then, and when people were coming up with some crazy ideas back then about how to change the, the Earth's climate also. It's a very um,
2: human thing, too, I think, to um, say, the climate's changing, let's change the climate. Yeah. And of course, we can change yeah. ourselves as well, right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> like one us not concerns, look outwards too much. <laughs> One of the concerns
1: now though is that back in the 1975 in you know in the 1970s there were these crazy ideas but we didn't necessarily have the, the technology the capacity to carry them out. but yep. now with the, the technology and the understandings that we have, it's a bit scary because somebody is, you know, has just got to throw enough money at one of these crazy ideas, and we may have some mm-hmm. large-scale geoengineering, uh, um, yeah, uninformed geoengineering mm-hmm. that happens, which could actually make things worse. Yeah. And some people claim there's been geoengineering since the Second World War,
0: though. I'm uh, sure.
1: I'm sure there has. So there's no doubt that there has been, you know, at uh, certain scales. I mean, how widespread it is is, I guess, anybody's guess. But um, even here in Tasmania, we have. Climate engineering going on, um, you know, whereby they seed clouds down there to fill up dams and that kind of thing.
2: And famously, Um, throughout Indonesia each year, there's a period of just burning and burning down forests. Oh yes, uh, often for you know planting palm oil and these things. But if you travel to somewhere else like Singapore during that time, it's really really smoky, (laughs) and so we're starting to see the flow and effects of this.
0: Absolutely,
1: yeah, that's right.
0: You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. Oh yes, it's 10.16 uh, here on BayFM on Future Sense. And uh, you can check all of our podcasts out our editor podcast via the website futuresense.it. futuresense.it. And that's usually available within 24 uh, hours. 24- maybe 48 hours the most after the show each week and go there and see past shows of this. Edited, uh, edited out all the sponsorships and also the music, unfortunately, because sometimes the music's good, but uh, the content is right there. So check it out, it. Yes, so Steve, we gonna talk a little bit about uh, about leadership in the last bit because you guys have got to rush off soon,
1: I know, because you've got an appointment. We'll come to that. We, we do, yeah. We Ross and I are scooting up to Queensland to run a strategic planning workshop for uh, an organisation... Who is one of the the major donors to our uh, charitable foundation, which has created has been created to support this uh, global paradigm shift and the emergence of uh, human consciousness? And what some of the things we'll be talking to them about are how organisational structures are changing and how leadership is changing within the workplace. And uh, I, I guess some of the the central themes here are the collapse of hierarchies, so um, moving away from this, you know, highly structured um, system that we've had during the modern scientific industrial era where top you know, systems, top-down directed and in, in the process of, of collapsing that, tapping into the wisdom of the crowd, and that also changes the leadership. Obviously, changes the leadership dynamic within an organisation, and it asks people to step up and exercise personal leadership, and and so for everybody to become more involved in the decision making process.
0: Does that first? I mean, when you say that, I immediately think about a, a, an individual's personal evolution, uh, their you know their regard, their awareness of their conscious uh, application to. Uh, evolving, so to speak, developing themselves—is that—is that necessary for that? I mean, I guess it's all—it's tangled up together. But it would seem to, it's sometimes it's a very personal thing to actually make that movement towards more awareness, and more consciousness about uh, about yeah. the planet, about what's going on. It yeah. is, and
2: it works both ways. Um, so as as an individual is learning more and trying new tricks and uh, changing the way they live and the way they work, so is the organisation they're a part of, or organisations. And then as the organisation changes, maybe they get a new tool or they purchase a new company or something different happens at work, it demands more of the individual as well. Mm. So there is this pendulum from what is the individual doing and how are they impacting the organization? And then at the same time, uh, how is the organization changing and impacting the, the person? Mm. So we've seen a lot of this through technology uh, in the last couple of decades where you know there was a time when no organization had a telephone and telephones came out. And we could organise things across towns really quick.
0: <laughs> well, it was so funny watching uh, the Sting with uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford yesterday from 1973. And most people would be familiar with that, and uh, the old the old dial telephones and how slow it was to communicate and how ma- how easy it made <laughs> things to you know to be crooked and to be distorted and yeah. to you know to
1: uh, to uh, deceive people because. People didn't know what was going on yeah, half the time. Yeah. That's right. And, and, of course, that uh, slowness of communication were, was central to the sting itself This yeah, and the sting being a right. set up where they, they were conning this guy out of his money. Yeah. And uh, they were relying on the fact that uh, when a horse race was run, the results of the horse race would have to be typed into a telex machine and then would come out on a stream of you know, uh, yeah. of paper, which they called The Wire, it would come down The Wire and then be read out by the the local uh, announcer mm. at the, the betting agency or wherever they were. And, of course, what they had was a, uh, a back-end communication channel where they would hear directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak, mm-hmm. who won the race, and before it came through on The Wire, they would know who to bet on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um,
1: it was great, but uh, amazingly, of its time. When you think that that's only
0: forty five, it's only forty five <laughs> years ago. It's not that, not that long, but it is also a long time yeah. ago. But how much has changed in forty five years? My goodness! Exactly.
2: Yeah. So now it's yeah. mobile phones. Then yeah. we brought the mobile phones to work. It's right out we have there. Social networks bringing the social networks to work. We have chat rooms everywhere at work. Um, and, and it just keeps on moving, obviously. Uh, and each time it's increasing the, the possibility of how quickly we can speak within the organization mm. and outside the organization with our customers and suppliers and everyone else. And so each time we're constantly challenged of well, what do we do with the speed? And is speed necessarily better? And how do we cope with all of this extra information that's coming from inside the organization mm. and outside the organization?
0: that networking though it certainly enables partly the breakdown of the hierarchy so it doesn't just that just the fact that everybody knows much more about what's going on everywhere so yeah to speak.
1: it does um, when I was in the military I had uh, sort of early um, access to to these kinds of practices and I'm thinking now it must have been back in the late 1980s so in some of the jobs that I had I used to work with uh, members of the uh, SAS regiment special Health service regiment who had um, very well resourced and and often on the leading edge of whatever's new, you know, and, and whatever's uh, most effective in terms of procedures. And they were practicing in their small group patrols. And we're talking it could be say a group of uh, just five people. This collapsing of hierarchy process. And so in the within the the group of five, you might have one officer and uh, you know some NCOs and some soldiers, and each of them would have a particular specialist skill. Um, so one of them might have special skills in in being a medic. One of them might be a signal, etc. And so often on the job, they would actually collapse the hierarchy. So instead of the most senior person in the patrol making a decision, the decision would defer to whoever had the most expertise mm. in that particular area. Um, and, and so uh, I at the time, I thought that was very, very interesting. And now in hindsight, I can see it was the early emergence of this next paradigm of how organisations function is this idea of collapsing hierarchy, deferring to expertise instead. Mm. Um, but that also demands that the person with the expertise is prepared to step up you know and and take on that leadership responsibility and share their expertise with the team
0: very paradoxical at this time isn't it? that this whole idea of uh, of leveling the, the field everybody gets a voice it's all sit in a circle everybody gets an equal time to say what they feel about something but that often of course doesn't get much done exactly. too much talk and yeah. so at some point as you're saying the person with the expertise in the moment over the issue at hand needs to be able to step up and say well you know, I'm sort of going to lead this particular project right now, it doesn't mean I'm the leader in a hierarchical sense, it's just this is the most appropriate
1: Yeah, and moment. you know, there are lots and lots of complicators that can get in the way of this working effectively, you know, one of them being, as you said, uh, over communication and under action. Um, and it really demands the the dropping away of competitive dynamics within the group you know while you've got those power-based dynamics happening it really undercuts the effectiveness of this kind of process so that's a that's a big part of making it work
2: yeah and as people are bringing this new network technology into the workplace it is it is very tempting people spend a lot of time on some of these chat tools and they're just chatting a lot Um, and while we can look at them as a way to reduce the, the friction involved with communicating with each other, it actually demands that we reinforce some of the hierarchy around decision-making and action. So we can sit around chatting about a new issue all day and getting everyone up to speed, but we can't do that about everything the organization does. So traditionally, that's where you have the hierarchy, and you know the boss or the, the CEO or whoever it is, is the tiebreaker. They used to be the tiebreaker for the action decision as well as the communication. Um, because of the way communication worked. So it would flow through a centralized hub of the leader or the department head or the CEO, and then back down the other side. Once we flatten the communication, we still need people to push along that action. Mm. Um, And so there is this kind of decoupling of the communication, which could be separate from some of the decision-making. And so while we're empowering the people, maybe at the the edges of the network, who might have the best skills or be the most well-informed on particular things, um, and the executives can do a lot to empower those people and let them step up. Uh, it does definitely work both ways.
1: Mm. It does, yeah. Um, there's a, a book which came out in 2014 by Frederic Laloux called "Reinventing Organizations," which looks at the emergence of these new ways of organizing and communicating and managing within within uh, companies, etc. And uh, it's it's actually it's a very very good book. Uh, he's used. Uh, some of the spiral dynamics stuff, which is based on Claire Graves and also Ken Wilber's integral theory uh, in putting forward that. And uh, he talks about teal organizations, which are uh, not exactly second tier, but they're very, very close to it. So we call it, we're talking about high-functioning uh, layer six Mm -hmm. which is the emerging paradigm, very high functioning, is what he's describing. And he's giving a couple of of examples in the book of uh, existing organisations that are making this process work. And generally, they tend to be organisations that already have fairly well-established workflow processes, and, and uh, so people are part of an active process that's connected to other parts of the organization, and so that tends to mm. compensate for any tendency for people to sort of just commun- work uh, talk too much and not do enough work mm. because they have to fit in with the, the workflow process, and they know that some other group is relying on them to, to have an output within a certain amount of time. Um, and I think that's fairly essential. You've got to have that kind of structure. Um, I, I think the potential downfall of, of trying out this new way of working is to think that it doesn't need any structure or leadership at all. And I've seen things go wrong, particularly in community organisations, where yep. people make the assumption that, oh, no, let's collapse the hierarchy, but we don't need a leader. Yep. But we actually do need people to step up and show leadership where their expertise applies. Mm-hmm. And we also need to have a, a structure so that the, we, we know there's got to be an output, you know, and not just a big discussion. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah a lot of times, once you collapse some of these hierarchies, um, you almost revert to schoolyard bullying. It's we, the person with the loudest voice, not necessarily the, that, the best. Exactly,
1: to exactly, and, and as is the case with all of the the first tier layers of consciousness, is when people are operating out of one of these layers, they often kind of make the assumption that everybody else is too. And I think there's certainly an element of that in some of the literature around this new way of working is there's an assumption that everybody's going to be espousing the same values at work, and then that's simply not the case. And and we do know that often... the, some of the consciousness layers, which uh, have a tendency to um, have power over or mm. manipulate others, they have a field day in these sort of free-flowing structures where there, you know, there aren't too many boundaries and stuff because it's just like open season for them. So, interesting.
0: From the book, uh, you're talking about reinventing organisations by Frederick Laloux. Uh, one of the quotes, uh, which replies to what you're just saying here, I think, the most exciting breakthroughs of the 21st century, he says, will not occur because of technology, but because of an expanding concept of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And that's really the key, isn't it? That's really the change in people that's going to actually facilitate the deeper change in organisations. Yeah, in I end.
1: mean, you know, we're tapping into the, this emerging new way of being human, which is more capable. And it's it's more capable, essentially, because of the uh, use of network dynamics, and, uh, and the sharing of, you know, information and, and action. Yeah.
0: yeah Awesome. You guys are going to have to run off shortly, aren't we you? We are going to have to hit the But <laughs> you've got a couple but of things to
1: finish off with, I can tell. It's very coming. soon. Yeah. <laughs> it's going, um, it's I was just going to, before we finish on this topic, I was just going to mention the book The Wisdom of Crowds, which was published in mm. 2004 by James uh, Surowiecki. Mm. And uh, he gave three things which are essential for The Wisdom of Crowds to work. And the first one was independence of decision and that's really important because if you've got uh, people Going along with everyone else's decision rather than exercising their own decision-making process, then that undercuts the wisdom because you you basically you end up with a, with a kind of a cult um, rather than a diversity of, of input. The second thing that he raised was uh, that diversity of information and uh, and once again you know if if you've got something like and I'll use the example of global warming mm-hmm. where it's become like if you don't go along with the global warming thing then you're you you're just out. We're not even going to listen to you. You know, and in fact, you should be um, you should be censored. Uh, And what that does is it undercuts this idea of diversity of information, and it means that you are not getting access to information which could be and probably is useful and important to your process. And so, it's really important to preserve that. And that's that's why I'm always saying, you know, stay curious. Let's be open to everything. Let's let's uh, account for and assess everything rather than excluding stuff. And the third thing that he mentioned that was critical to the wisdom of crowds is the decentralization of organization, which, which is exactly what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. This uh, this collapsing of the hierarchical structure, but the, re- the remaining importance of uh, leadership and also discipline within the group mm-hmm. uh, as well, and fairness and balance. Mm-hmm. And it
2: really is the action that that brings us back to that focus. You know, we can chat, we can chat, but there's a deadline or there's a meeting or something's happening. We've got to open the shop. And it's very easy to get stuck in these loops of romanticizing. We've got a network. We can include everyone. Oh, hang on. Did we do that thing? It's overdue.
1: Exactly. (laughs) You know, if there's one single common flaw that I see in organizations, you know, whether they be community committees or, or, you know, money profit-making organizations who try this stuff, then that's the the most common flaw is that uh, there's too much communication or nothing.
2: And are we overlooking the obvious stuff? Yeah. Um, As my my friend Simon Terry likes to say about uh, his future of work work, um, one of the biggest differences, as quoted by the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics, is that people entering the workforce are on average eight centimetres taller than those retiring. (laughs) 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 So larger doorways for everyone.
1: must be all the growth That's of most
2: really most <laughs> <laughs> It's really good. That's
0: a good note to leave, I think. Yeah, we, we had a cut and run. Yeah, You guys cut and uh, run. I'll play some great. music and say a few other things here in the next half hour. Maybe I'll just shut up and play music, whatever. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Steve McDonald, my regular co-host. He'll be back next week, of course, and to our guest, Ross Hill, who no doubt gotcha. will be back again in the future. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.